Chapter Six of A Christmas Honeymoon by Francis Amar Matthews. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. What Peter Did Mr. Van Zant was late in getting from his office that day. He looked up at Betty's windows and saw lights shining through the flimsy lace curtains. Poor Bridget had turned every jet as high as possible. Shaddle had the biggest log of his store burning on the hearth, and the two, one hovering to open the door and the other ambushed in the pantry, awaited the master's footsteps. No need for his key. The butler opened wide, and Peter sprang in, expecting his wife's laughter at the threshold. Or did he not expect it? Had he one of those mysterious things called an apprehension? No one might know. He said good evening to Shaddle, threw a short glance around and up the stairs, then into the drawing-room, the library, across through the arch into the other half of the double house, stepping into his library, picturing all the while her fond little arms, her perfect lips, her tender cooing voice, the goodness and the warmth and comfort and bliss of her, shortly to be found, enjoyed, reveled in. Perchance a little bit of submission, most delicious, and certainly by and by he should be playing to her on the despised violin, she listening, won over, conquered. Yes, that would be it, conquered. To conquer, to be conquered, exactly what the man and the woman each wants. But the process of achievement must be always adequate, always adjusted, in a fashion that masculine one-and-twenty knows nothing at all about. Peter, of course, did not find Betty in the law library. He came slowly back to the other half, the half they mostly lived in, and as slowly mounted the stairs. Betty was not in her room or her dressing-room, he did not note the absence of the trunks. Betty was not in his dressing-room, nor was she on the floor above. But the enchanting little witch was hiding in the garret, of course. Peter went to the garret. It was a big place, extending all over both halves of the double house. The rafters were black and cobwebby, and strung and hung with all manners of garments. There were dusty engravings, cracked mirrors, rusty Franklin stoves, spinning wheels, barrel chairs and faded chintz, calfskin trunks with brass nails, hessian boots covered with mold, his father's old saddle, a pillow, a spinet, piles of la belle assemblée, and annuals, rickety tables, three-legged chairs, leghorn bonnets, sleigh bells, the key to the big dividing doors that he had so lately hung on their peg a scrape of pink and yellow ribbon under his feet, the reflection of his own figure in a cracked cheval glass, holding the candlestick in his hand. But there was no Betty. Mr. Van Zant came down to the first floor. No one was yet to be seen. In fact, Shaddle and Miss Supple were wedged in their pantry, palpitating with a great and suppressed excitement, neither one daring to emerge or to offer explanation. Mr. Van Zant thought, she has gone out, up to Bloomingdale, to see the de Pasters, to give me a little fright, but I will not follow her, no, no, a man must not give in too far, she will come home by ten. He dressed for dinner, sat down and ate. He smoked a cigar or two, pacing the front hall after the servants had gone below. 
he watched the tall old clock in its niche between the drawing-room and library doors until the hands pointed to ten then he crossed again into the other half of his house into the law library and scanning the table he at last saw betty's envelope he opened and read he stood still the frail bitter little paper weapon grasped in his sledgehammer hand that was it the giant the man powerless in the flutter of the butterfly's wings blinded by the little little thing a littler thing even than the violin that had wrecked his wife's young life he sat down still holding the tiny sheet and he sat there nearly motionless until morning shadow and supple sat up all night too waiting for a possible summons watching for they could not even surmise what the chilly pallid sun of the indian summer slanted in alike upon master and man and maid but no word was spoken between them shadow went up and laid out his master's fresh clothes filled his tub put the morning paper on the candle-stand beside his untouched bed then slipped down again to the kitchen the breakfast was announced and although the master sat at meat he ate not a morsel and only drank half the cup of coffee that supple in silence poured for him afterwards he went out and he did not come back for three days shadow and bridget were frightened to death almost visions of suicide murder and kindred horrors distorting all their waking and sleeping hours as well by and by mr van zant did come home no one knew until long years after where and how he had spent those seventy-two hours when he returned it was on foot unshaven unkempt and haggard aged by years but with no syllable of either inquiry or explanation he made his toilet took some breakfast and drove down to his office in the white satin-lined coupe he had made into so soft and bride-like a nest for betty revere once at the office he wrote in a firm and rapid hand to his father-in-law at limoges merely this colonel john paul revere american consul general limoges france my dear sir you will do me the honor to receive each month for the future one half of my inherited income one half of my income from whatever law practice i may have it will reach you by check through rothschild and company bankers of paris and i shall highly esteem the condensation of your conveying the same monthly to my wife your daughter betty revere van zant you will also my dear sir i am sure do me the further favor of conveying the intelligence to mrs van zant that the house on the square is to be immediately altered into two distinct dwellings the masons and carpenters will be at work to-morrow the half which mrs van zant did me the honor of occupying will remain intact as she was pleased to leave it always ready for her occupancy at any moment the passageways will be walled up the carriage-house will be secluded from the square part of the establishment and be solely at mrs van zant's service the garden will be unequally divided by a high brick wall leaving mrs van zant in entire possession of the paths flowers graperies etc etc bridget supple will live in mrs van zant's half of the house and will hold herself in complete readiness at all times to serve her mistress 
I have the honor to be, my dear Colonel Revere, your obedient servant and son-in-law, Peter Van Zant. New York, November 10th, 1800-something. This was mailed and went out by the ship sailing that very day for Havre. All the things that Peter Van Zant had mentioned in his letter to Colonel Revere were promptly done, his orders carried out to the letter. Bridget agreed, more than willingly, to live on in her accustomed quarters. It would not be lonely since the two basement doors in reality opened upon one another. The back doors of both kitchens were alongside of each other. Shadow was to remain in his place, and Miss Supple was to do the cook for her master, and all the general work of the bachelor quarters that were evidently to be maintained in the Washington Square side of Dr. Van Zant's big house. In a fortnight, the walls then were built, the arches filled, the new plaster dried and papered in the semblance of marble columns like the rest of the halls. Heavy curtains, too, were hung over the archways. And Peter Van Zandt, after that, retired to his half of the house, and never again in long, long years put his foot inside his wife's side of the old brick mansion. As soon as the workmen began to be busy, he had gone to the New York Hotel and stopped there. When the repairs were finished, it was his order that Shaddle should so report to him. Everything now being finished, Shaddle was polishing his boots in the garden outside of the kitchen window. Bridget was inside rolling out pastry. She opened her sash, for the kitchen was hot. Shad? Yes, Biddy. Do you think if the master finds it out, he'll be after killing us? Sure, don't be silly. What have we got to do with it? Oh, haven't we, though? We can't know if you don't tell him. Then maybe he'd blame the boss builder and call him in and make him do it, and we'd get sent away for interfering. No, Shadow shook his head. The young master'll never find it out. He'll never look behind them curtains, I know. It was bold of us anyhow. It was yourself, Biddy, with your big heart as thought of leaving the first floor arch as it was. It was yourself that wheeled the boss builder. It was yourself that confessed it to Father O'Shaughnessy and got absolution for meddling with your superiors. So it was. Bridget left the pastry board and sat down and cried tempestuously. Sure, it was me myself that did all that, thinking all the time that when the young creature comes back, how sad she'd be to find the road to him blocked up like that. Ah, don't be crying, Biddy. You're in the right of it always. Sure, I'm thinking the day'll soon come when the young master'll be glad enough that there's one door leading to the mistress's part of the old house that ain't barred again him, except by the turning of a key in the lock. She'll come home. She must. Ah, she must come home to him wailed Miss Supple, and him the light of her eyes and her the apple of his. Biddy, Shaddle dropped his blacking brush hastily and thrust a hand through the wide iron bars of the kitchen window, seizing Bridget's flowery fingers. Say, mayn't I go beyond and tell Father O'Shaughnessy to read our bands next week? Shaddle had, he thought, caught his Dulcinea in a melting mood. But Bridget cast a deeply reproachful glance through her bars, jerked her hand back to its rolling pin, and answered, Sure, men has no hearts at all, at all. 
shad i'll not have no bands read as i told you until the mistress comes home then the lord help us responded the butler may she come in the next ship she won't do that same but she'll come was miss supple's not altogether comforting rejoinder mr van zandt left the hotel that evening immediately after shadow's visit he came back to his home entering now and always by the washington square door the door his father had been accustomed to use for all the years of his professional life as the serving man and woman had foreseen he never pushed aside the curtains that had so artfully hung to inspect the work in fact it was an intense relief to him not to see the new walls not to have to look at the solid dividing barrier for a while he led his life quite so far as any one could see as usual not only mingling with his kind men never ventured to ask peter van zandt one question nor women either there was tacit silence between him and his acquaintances whatever surmises they made among themselves no one knew where mrs van zandt was until annie de paster had a letter from her at limoges and in this betty vouched no more of an explanation than her husband annie wrote betty answered a correspondence that was between the lines and wherein annie proved herself the invaluable wonderful friend a woman can be when she is made of the right materials on the night when peter had left the new york hotel and returned to his own roof he had called shadow to him in his library shadow saw the violin lying on the big table also the godey's lady's book and the little envelope addressed to his master shadow yes sir you see this table these papers books violin case all these things on it i do mr van zandt well i want them to remain just so no finger to touch them no dusting no moving at any time yes sir and you will tell bridget i shall sir sure sir you know if it's your will me and bridget sir had die before we'd let a breath come near them very good i believe you and shadow see to it always every night without fail remember and tell supple too light the gas jets all of them in mrs van zandt's rooms as soon as twilight comes on and let them burn until morning yes sir shadow went down to bridget sure biddy he concluded his orders with the mistress'll be comin soon and the bands shadow be quiet supple ran upstairs and lighted her young mistress's rooms and every night the neighbors saw the brilliancy in that half of the double house all the more noticeable because every other window was dark you see peter's abode was quite around the corner a little later on when christmas was nigh there arrived from the florists a load of evergreens and boxes of poinsettias and wreaths of holly and mistletoe tied with scarlet ribbons and the young master said to the butler shadow i want you and bridget to hang wreaths in the windows of mrs van zandt's rooms and garlands around the chandeliers and pictures and ropes of evergreen over the doorways and on christmas eve tomorrow night light all the candles on the mantel and on your mistress's dressing-tables and let them burn to the socket and all the gas-jets too and here's for your christmas and bridget's 
and all was done as he had directed. Betty's room were a bower of fragrance, and over the picture of the Madonna and the little blessed child, Bridget made bold to hang a blessed medal fraught with prayers to all her favorite saints. But the master did not come home that night. End of chapter 6